We are looking at Mark chapter 15 tonight, and I want to look at just a few verses. It won't be um, a long meditation this evening, but Mark chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. Uh, We advance in the text from the trial of Jesus uh, that had two two sections to it, the Roman and the Jewish trial, to the, uh, the mockery of Jesus. Some of the Gospels don't even have these verses, this section in it, but Mark records it. And it's important for his purposes. As you get to Mark chapter uh, 15, I want you to put your finger there, put a marker in there, take a bulletin or something. And uh, what we find out in this part of the book is uh, this section in the life of Christ is not only done for divine purposes, it's, it's done as fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, there are many Old Testament texts that, talks, that talk about a future righteous suffering man who would come from God and deliver his people. And so, uh, some of that we're going to hear tonight in this text, and we're going to hear it again next week as we go through the next part. And so what I'd like to do is go back to two psalms and just read them, uh, just to kind of give us perspective, to get us thinking about these psalms. So, go back to Psalm 22. Uh, We're not going to read the whole section, just select verses which talk about a suffering righteous man, a suffering righteous man who will come from God. Okay, and so I want to look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. In this text, I preached on this text in mission, uh, or our Grace Essentials Conference on Mission last year, and uh, this text is a text where David is prophesying about a future man, a righteous suffering man who will come from God. Psalm 22, let me just read a few verses that describe his suffering to you. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Go down to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, mock me, they make mouths at me and wag their heads. You just think of the future Messiah that would come, Jesus, on the cross. Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hand, my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing, or, and for my clothing they cast lots. Let's flip over to Psalm 69, one other psalm. Uh, this is a tradition that's not found only in the psalms. You can find it in Isaiah. You can find it in some of the, the, the other prophetic books of the Old Testament that would talk about a future man that would come from God, a righteous sufferer who would bear the sins of his people. Psalm 69, again, I just want to read a few verses to you. You can see how the psalmist David is looking forward to what Christ will do. Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Let's go down to verses 19 through 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink, or wine mixed with myrrh. Verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. These Old Testament texts that look forward to this future suffering of a righteous man who would save God's people. As we go to the, uh, back to the Gospel of Mark now, we come to a text where these sort of things are going to begin to be occurring to Jesus. See, the mockery of Jesus in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. And before I read that to you, let me just make a personal confession. Uh, so all week this week, I've been in Mark 15, meditating, thinking. You know, and I was going throughout the course of the week. I got into about, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday, and, uh, you know, and think about this in mornings and so on. And it's, I started getting pretty depressed, you know, like, I can't. This is so terrible, what they did to Jesus. There's a seriousness to it. There's a somberness to it. It's trying to reflect upon what they actually did to him is, is pretty... Uh, pretty down. But one of the things I want you to do is I want you to remember that he does this to, to bring salvation and to glorify the Father. At the end, as hard and as difficult as it will be to see the way that they mocked our Lord Jesus Christ, we will remember that he rises victorious and he brings us with him. Okay, we're going to close that way tonight. As we look at the mockery of Jesus, I want you to look at Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. Let me read it for you. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, or they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, in order to fully understand these verses, I just want to take a few moments with you, about 15 or 20 minutes. I want to meditate upon them. I want to look at them in a little fuller detail. I'm going to divide these verses up into three parts. The first thing I see in the text is what I'm going to call the royal clothes. This is all part of the mockery of Jesus. The royal clothes that are given to him in verses 16 and the first part of verse 17. In verse 16, you learn that the Roman soldiers move Jesus into the palace, the text says, or uh, better uh, understood to be Pilate's headquarters or his barracks. Once inside of there, they call a whole Roman battalion or cohort of soldiers to come and to deal with Jesus. 
a battalion or a cohort would be one-tenth of a legion, about 600 soldiers. So once these 600 soldiers are assembled, they put royal clothes on him. Now, what we have to remember is the narrative. We have to remember the picture and what just happened to Jesus. Pilate had him scourged. Soldiers, one at a time, scourging him with the flagellum that we talked about today. So now his body is ripped open. And they put, uh, you know, you can, he's, he's flogged so severely that his flesh and mu- muscles would be bleeding and hanging and exposed but they put a purple cloak on him. The reason they do this, of course, if you've heard preaching or teaching on this, is the the color purple would typically identify one with riches and royalty. It's used in Luke 16, verse 19. This word purple is not used very often in the New Testament, but it is used in Luke 16, where it says, There was a rich man who was clothed clothed in purple and fine linen and who feast sumptuously every day. And so this purple would be something to be extravagant. It normally would also imply some level of royalty. So this is a regal color. So they put this this royal garment on him, but their mockery doesn't stop there. Next, and the second point I would make, is I want you to see that they put a royal crown on him. So look at the middle to end of verse 17. It says, And twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on him. So royal crowns were typically made of gold, right? And they would indicate the honor or the recognition that would be due the king. But not so with Jesus. Jesus' crown is made of a thorns, probably from a plant, an acanthus plant, a very thorny plant. And so Jesus' crown, we, we, I believe, is not only created for mockery purposes. You know, other guys get gold, he gets thorns. But I believe it's also met as a form of torture. Torture. As some of those thorns, no doubt, were turned down into the head and the forehead of Christ. Because we think of this crown. The torture, again, is occurring. Ironically, these thorns should remind, I think, the alert reader to the Bible of the curse of sin itself. As I was studying this week, I was thinking thorns. You know, you do a little word study with thorns, and then you're like, oh, it's in Genesis. It's in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You don't have to turn there. Let me read them to you. It says, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, uh, you, or you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. One of the thoughts that hit me here concerning the crown of thorns that Jesus wore is that we would not even have thorns if it weren't for sin. And so, how fitting, in a sense, they give him royal clothes and a royal crown made of sin's 
consequence. Thorns. But the mockery is not finished. You look at verses 18 through 20 in the text, and we go to my third point, third and final point, the royal coronation that they throw for him. The mock royal coronation that they throw for this king. Look in verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth, put on his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. One commentator by the name of R.T. France describes this fake royal coronation well. He said, They enact a mock ceremony of enthronement in which, and this is a part I really liked about his quote, he said, in which brutality and sarcasm sarcasm are equally mixed. So you see the things they do here. We're going to look at this just very quickly and see his mock ceremony from Mark's perspective includes four things. These four things are either a form of brutality or sarcasm or both. There's nothing really legitimate to what they're doing here. So what does their coronation involve? Number one, a salutation. Salutation. They salute him with a mock ceremony. Whenever anyone would come into the presence of Caesar, the Roman official, they would say, Hail, Caesar! They use this word, hail, which means it's a way of rejoicing or celebrating someone, and they attach it to the king of the Jews. These proud Roman soldiers mock this lowly Jewish man, calling him, hail, king of the Jews. After their salutation, they, secondly, they strike him. It says in, in Mark's Gospel, it says that the soldiers took a reed, a reed, a long stick. It was to mimic a king's scepter. So how do you know that? Well, if you go to another Gospel, you go to Matthew, and you look at it there, you see in that Gospel that they originally give Jesus this stick, and they put it in his hand, and people start bowing down and and mocking him, and offering him false worship as a king. And that is true until someone gets it into their head to grab the stick, take it from him, and beat him over the head with it. And that's what Mark captures for us. They beat him with the scepter, the stick that they, they craft. You could just imagine how these soldiers would be having fun and jeering. Maybe you've seen something where a group of people pick on another person and then someone grabs the stick and starts beating on him and then they all think that that's appropriate. Then, third part of this mock ceremony, they spit on him. The words of praise stop from these soldiers, false words of praise, and they decide to do something else with their lips. Something else with their lips, they spit on him. Of course, they're adding insult to injury here. They begin to spit on him and his open wounds. This is vile, right? Dirty, filthy. We, we don't even do this to animals. But they spit on him. This was a way, I think, for them to completely repudiate him. I have nothing to do with this man. Then these 600 soldiers offer the fourth means, fourth means here, False worship, I call it fake reverence. It says the soldiers would come and kneel and bow down before him and offer false homage to him. 
As I was thinking of this scene, I was thinking how we sometimes respond when we see something that we feel is unjust. I don't know if you've ever seen a video or something like a Facebook video of a, of a gang or a group of people picking on someone else. I've actually somehow seen some of these before, you know, someone, some teenagers being picked on and people are gathering around, they start poking at them, pushing them, and then someone slaps them or hits them. And it's really hard for me to watch those things. In fact, I don't like to watch them. And there's a part, I think, of each one of us, I don't care how old we are, that would want to rise up to the injustice like that. But yet for Jesus, no one does that. He's all by himself. No one intervenes. He's completely innocent, abused severely by the soldiers, but all alone. This mockery of Jesus reveals that he is indeed the one of whom the Old Testament spoke. The suffering, righteous man who will come in the name of God to deliver his people. So thinking about this, there's a quote that I read long ago in a C.S. Lewis book that I want to end with here because... It reminds us of this true cost that Jesus faced, the mockery that he faced, but it also reminds us, I believe, of his victory. Lewis was describing the mission of Christ, and uh, I think I've used this uh, once before, maybe two, two, over two years ago, but I love what Lewis says here. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. And now Lewis gives two pictures, vivid pictures, I think, that would portray the work of Christ. He says, one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. As I'm like reading through the mockery of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, I'm just seeing as the condescending, the lowering, Jesus going lower and lower. But we must remember he's going to lift it all up with him. Gives another illustration I think that's good. Lewis says, one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nothingness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again. Back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they've come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. And so men and women, as we consider these, this, these true events of the, the death of Christ, he is our strong man who goes low, who dies through the means of a cross so that he might get us and take us up to glory. And we rejoice in this.
And so instead of being depressed all week, I got to about Wednesday or Thursday, and I said, you know what, I remember the end of this story. I remember the end of this story. And I need to remind myself of the end of this story. That Jesus and all this stuff does happen, but He will arise victorious and bring us with Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for this vivid description in Mark's book of the mockery of Jesus. They decked him up in royal clothes and they put a crown on his head. They mocked him, they jeered him, they beat on him, they spit him. Soon, next week, we will consider his crucifixion. But Lord, we know the end of the story. We know that he was successful through the power of the Spirit. He rose again. And we can rejoice in that. Lord, as we go forward for you this week, I pray that we might be willing and ready to boast of the sacrifice of our strong man, our strong man who delivered us, who set us free, the righteous suffering one that the Psalms prophesied of that would come and deliver us from our sin. We're thankful, Father, and we pray that we might take that message to others this week as well. In Jesus' name, amen.